From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Welcome to Washington Watch, friends. My name is Joseph Backholm. I'm a senior fellow at Family Research Council, and it is my pleasure to be sitting in for Tony today. Coming you to you today from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in beautiful Fort Worth, Texas. As they say down here, it is God's country, and it's been my pleasure to be part of this week, the International Association for Christian Education. It's been a great week gathering with the heads of Christian colleges all around the country, and there's a lot of concern about higher education in the country uh, for good reason, because there's a lot of institutions of higher learning that have uh, made some bad choices, even in the Christian community, for sure. But I assure you, friends, there are some good ones as well. Just look for them. They're out there. You'll find them, and they can provide great value to your family, to your children, to your grandchildren. Uh, So be encouraged there. Today on the program, new research on virus on vaccines, excuse me, for children. Should they be getting them or not? Uh, Pfizer is delaying implementation of vaccines for kids. We'll talk about whether that's a positive or negative development. In addition, why one author is viewing the Olympics in China very differently than others. It's a tragic but important story about organ harvesting of political dissidents in China. Stay tuned for that. The end of the program, the SAFE Act is legislation just introduced in Missouri that would prohibit doctors from giving hormone blockers or removing healthy body parts from minors who experience gender dysphoria. Why is that an issue the church should care about? That's the conversation we'll have with David Clausen in our worldview segment at the end of the program. But first, our top story. It's getting hard to keep track of this, but school and public health officials across the nation have been announcing their plans to drop mask mandates amid sharp declines in the number of new COVID cases and hospitalizations. Yesterday, Nevada's Democratic governor announced that the state was dropping its statewide mask mandate effective immediately. When elementary school students in one classroom heard this, well, it's clear that this was an announcement that was long overdue. Starting tomorrow, we don't have to wear masks anymore! Their joy is our joy. Children, we celebrate with you. But still, there are some officials that are sticking to their guns, including Boston Mayor Michelle Wu, who said yesterday she will not drop the mask mandate in city schools, stressing her city's efforts to keep closing the gap for vaccinations. Now, teachers' unions have been one of the biggest proponents of mask mandates around the country. Randy Weingarten is the head of the National Teachers' Union, and here's what she said about what needs to happen before we end mask mandates in schools. What Dr. McBride just told us about masks not particularly being effective for children, what's the argument against taking off masks in schools? Well, the argument is that you have, well, let me just say this. I am in favor of an off-ramp on masks. Right. The real issue becomes, are, is, the, is, is the spread low enough so that there's no dissemination or transmission in schools? Of course, we cannot guarantee that there will be no dissemination or transmission in schools, just like we can't guarantee there will be no dissemination or transmission of any other virus in schools. We've never been able to make that promise, and we never will. In another interview, she seemed to acknowledge that. The issue becomes, how do we make sure that the entire community in a school feels safe and welcome? And I don't think that we... There's, when you get to COVID, there's no, no risk. The real issue becomes, how do we make sure that everybody feels safe? 
she's correct, of course, that there is no, no risk. Life has never been risk-free. But how do we get to the point where everyone feels safe? Well, of course, we don't. In a country of 320-plus million people, you're never going to get to a situation where everyone feels safe because feeling safe is a subjective thing and may not have anything to do with the information. The best we can do is expect to eliminate avoidable, unnecessary risks and then live our lives. While masks have long been said to be the way to keep us safe, they are being called into question by the fact that those who are insisting most aggressively that masks are essential have been caught repeatedly in some cases not wearing masks in circumstances where they required others to do so. This front page image from the New York Post shows Stacey Abrams being photographed maskless in classrooms filled with mass students. Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti took photographs maskless at a football game when his executive orders required everyone at the game to be masked. He later said he was holding his breath during the photos. They are far from the only ones. Now, across the country, the momentum is shifting. Governors and local governments are lifting COVID mandates. Schools are lifting mask requirements. And at least one member of Congress thinks it's time for education across the country to get back to normal. Congresswoman Mary Miller of Illinois last month introduced two bills, the Make Our Schools Great Again Act which would prohibit federal funds from going to schools that impose mask or COVID shot mandates and the Liberating Learning for Kids Act, which would prohibit federal funding from going to schools that do not provide in-person instruction for all students. She joins me now to talk about how our country needs to be moving forward for the sake of our kids. Congresswoman Miller, welcome back to the program. Thank you. It's great to be here. And I just want to tell you that I'm an expert on children. I have seven children and I can't think of enough adjectives to describe how upset I am that we have continued to exploit this virus at the expense of our children. This is just, it's outrageous. It's sad. And what we're seeing is um, the Democrats, these leftists, don't want to lift these restrictions. They're using it for political purposes and exploiting our children. I'm very angry over it. Uh, Congresswoman, I think you speak for a lot of people when you say that. Now, in your state of Illinois, Governor Pritzker has removed the mask mandates everywhere except the schools. Why do you think that is? Well, He's true to form. He, you know, is sticking to this mask mandate for children, and he is such a hypocrite multiple times, including recently. He has been seen uh, shoulder to shoulder with our school children without a mask on. So he's forcing them to have it on, and it makes no sense legally or scientifically. Um, just the ultimate hypocrite. And, um, I don't know. It just it upsets me so much. I'm a strong advocate for parental rights. Parents yeah. should be allowed to decide. And I just want to encourage regular people to rise up. Parents need to rise up and stand up for their children. And one of the things we can do is be very encouraged by what's happened in our country when uh, parents stood up to, like in Virginia, when they, when they were mm -hmm. trying to you know, even the FBI trying to silence and intimidate parents, parents stayed strong in the defense of their children. And I want to encourage Illinois parents to do the same. That's a great point. It is time. And we are seeing evidence of parents standing up for themselves and for their kids at the federal level, but especially at the local level, where, frankly, parents can have more of an impact. Now, you've proposed two pieces of legislation to cut off funding from public schools that do not lift these mandates or do not actually bring students together in person. What kind of response are you getting from your fellow members of Congress? Do you get the sense that they are ready to move on? super partisan. The Democrats are still all about the shutdowns and the masks and vaccine mandates. I mean, even in D.C., the mayor has, um, a, you know, requiring uh, vaccine passports to go into restaurants or gyms. Um, but the Republicans all want this lifted. And it's just like the, the Republican states have been free for a long time. 
Now, Congresswoman, yesterday, uh, President Biden had a one-on-one -on -one interview with NBC Nightly News' Lester Holtz. I want to play you a clip of that and then get your response. Okay. Omicron and the variant, all the variants, have had a profound impact on the psyche of the American people. I mean, they have, they've had a profound impact. For example, think of all the kids who didn't get to go to a prom, all the graduations that didn't occur, all the things that, I mean, it's had a real psychological impact. Now, oh what's your God. reaction he, to... He go has ahead. no credibility anymore. The very things that he's responsible for, like the border, uh, the withdrawal in Afghanistan, uh, inflation, he has created absolute crises out of those. Our, our energy independence, you know, dismantling that, he is an utter failure at everything. And then he wants to come in and take total control over our lives, over our health, our bodies, take over, you know, the role of parents. He's... he's incompetent <laughs> i'm you know i'm part of the group calling for his impeachment mm -hmm. now he talks about the psychological impact and do you think that the virus has had a greater impact psychologically on children or is it the response to the virus that's had a greater impact absolutely it's the response and you know i was on board for the first you know couple weeks we didn't know what it was but then as we started seeing a little bit more what it was and, and that there were certain risk groups, instead of us responding to that and looking for treatments, the Democrats and different people like Fauci and, and some of them took advantage of the situation and, you know, just to continue to take our freedoms away from us. And, you know, God created us to be free people and to be relational. And they have exploited this virus to go after both of those things. I know for sure that a lot of people feel that way. Do you believe we're at the end of the government responses to COVID? Well, I do think we are because the Democrats are worried about the next election. And they know that they're on the wrong side of public opinion on this. But And people are way past time that they want to get back to normal. And we want, I mean, we have, our kids have lost three school years. This is, I mean, it's ridiculous. Right. But what I'm afraid of is that this is a test run for them. And they're going to try it again. And I just can't stress enough to the American people that we need to stand up, speak up, just like the truckers in Canada. They are amazing. We need to push back and, and stick together because there's power in numbers and elections have consequences. Uh, that is exactly right. Elections do have consequences. And frankly, uh, we are experiencing that and we continue to. And every day of our lives, we experience that. Congresswoman Mary Miller, thank you so much for your time, for your courage and for standing up for children, especially the seven that you have. Congratulations on that. Uh, we look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks for being with us. You're welcome. Thank you. And we are going to continue talking about this. As she mentioned, the public opinion turning. Is this just politics or is it science? Are they now following the science to get rid of these mandates? That's part of our conversation that we are going to have coming up next. Pfizer has delayed the COVID shots for tots. Is this a setback or is it good news? That's the conversation we're going to have when we come back right after the break. Stay with us. For centuries, the Bible has inspired humanity and shaped the very world we live in. But how do we know this book is the Word of God and not merely the words of men? What we believe about the Bible is based on what we believe about its source. The God Who Speaks explores the evidence of the Bible's inspiration and authority through some of the world's most respected biblical scholars. We have essentially a dual authorship. So it's true to say that Paul wrote Romans. It's equally true to say that God wrote Romans. He says, we saw this. And that sets the Bible apart from almost everything else 
in the ancient world and its religious pantheon of gods and goddesses. The God Who Speaks is a feature-length documentary from the American Family Association. Available now at thegodwhospeaks.org. Here's a moment of Hope for Your Home with Jerry and Becky Drace. Are you a contented person? Do you compare your situation in life with what you think other people have? Listen again to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. Love does not envy. We live in a jealous, envious culture that screams, Give it to me and give it now. What you have I want and I'm going to take it. These seem to have become national mottos in some of our areas. Have you ever watched toddlers play? One has, the other takes. We're not grateful by nature, so being selfish starts early. Yeah, being content and grateful are learned skills. Respect, gratitude, and contentment are core principles for a productive life which must be modeled and reinforced. Parents, teach your children to have a grateful heart. Ever heard the saying, if you build it, they'll come? What we say is... If you live by love, then you will love by your living. Learn more about the ministry of Jerry and Becky Drace at HopeForTheHome.org. How do we change a nation? One heart at a time. The ministry of Preborn not only shares heartbeats, but shares hearts by loving women in crisis and leading them to Christ. When this mother came to a preborn center, she was scared and not sure she could afford another child. It was just a scary time for us having my daughter, how that would impact our lives. When I came here, it was just so amazing to come to an environment where someone would actually pray for me and guide me through my battles that I was facing during that time. After receiving love, support, and the gospel of Christ, this mom chose life for her daughter. You can be a part of rescuing lives and changing hearts for Christ. For $140, sponsor five ultrasounds, and you'll receive a story and pictures of babies' lives that were spared. To donate, dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. That's pound 250 baby. Or go to preborn.com. Your gift is tax deductible. Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony today. So glad that you are with us. Quick reminder that the website is tonyperkins.com where you can watch this program, segments that you may have missed, or any other program from the week when you need to catch up, TonyPerkins.com. Earlier today, Pfizer and BioNTech announced that they are postponing their rolling application to the Food and Drug Administration for their COVID shots for tots, children between the ages of six months and four years old. Pfizer said it will wait for its data on a three-dose series of shots that is not expected until early April. Is this more good than bad news? Joining me now to talk about this is Dr. Andrew Bostom, an academic clinical trialist and epidemiologist who is currently a research physician at the Brown University Center for Primary Care and Prevention at Kent Memorial Hospital in Rhode Island. Dr. Bostom, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me back, Joseph. Great to see you again. Tell us your reaction to Pfizer's delay of the vaccine approval for the youngest among us. Yeah, I'm relieved, honestly. Uh, uh, so the way I understand it, because none of these none of these data, even in a preliminary way, have really been made public. Um, I guess they were unhappy with the with the uh, antibody response to the to the two shot regimen. Uh, in these youngest children, I, I, I understand they had reduced the dosage, and now they're um, going to stretch it out into a three-dose regimen. In other words, three three shots for a primary um, vaccination series. Um, and you know, all of this really really begs the question of of how these trials are are, are conducted. Um, and we've talked about this, you know, briefly yeah. in the past. That that in, in this case. Um, they're really they're, there's no clinical measure whatsoever, uh, uh, it, not even a mild infection. In other words, they, they were purely looking at an antibody response in these initial studies, and they didn't get one, uh, or didn't get a satisfactory one. Okay, um, Dr. Boston. Yeah, I, I want to jump in there because you're, there's concerns about apparently in these trials about the efficacy of the vaccine yeah. for children of this age. But I have a more fundamental question. What's the basis of the need? What, what's the risk to children who are six months to four years old? It's it's absolutely it's been minimal with the pre-Omicron strains, the, the original 
uh, Wuhan strain, uh, the alpha variant, the delta variant, um, and it's even lesser for, for, the, for the Omicron variant. Um, uh, you know, in the entire pediatric age range, it, uh, in the United States, certainly, um, this, the state uh, COVID mortality uh, of those kids that, who, who are actually infected ranges from literally 0% to 0.03%, to, to, to maybe yeah. th three in 10,000 infected people. Um, it's, it's extremely low. It's, it's lower than pandemic flu. It's lower than a lot of seasonal flus. Um, and, you know, the, the, the vaccine itself, as we've seen now, so apparently in, in, in adult populations, uh, obviously, has a, has a relatively rapid waning effect where it's, mm -hmm. it's not protective, certainly against infection and, and um, maybe to a, a lesser to, to a lesser extent against uh, hospitalization and death, but but in kids we have the flimsiest of, of data. Joseph, the five okay. to eleven year olds, where there actually was a randomized controlled trial, it was twenty three hundred kids. Um, they wound up randomizing basically fifteen. I think it was like fifteen hundred and fifty to the active vaccine, seven hundred and fifty to the placebo. And they prevented 13 very mild infections. Now, one of the strengths of the study was that they over-recruited kids with, with comorbidity, particularly obesity. About 20% of the entire cohort of 2,300 uh, had comorbidity. In the entire cohort, regardless of whether they got the placebo vaccine or the active vaccine, there wasn't a single hospitalization, none whatsoever. And okay. moreover, there was a subgroup of kids, I think it was about 10%, that had a history of a prior infection. None of those kids even got an infection, regardless of whether they were vaccinated or not. Then, then let me ask you another question. Where's the demand coming from for this vaccine for six months to four years old if, if they're even over-representing kids with comorbidities and none of them are getting sick? Where's the demand for this? Why I, are we I even pushing I don't see it. I don't see it. I don't see it, Joseph. You, you could perhaps argue... And it would have to be obviously, you know, uh, not not a mandated process, a consented, a consenting process um, that that kids that are that that may be at the highest possible risk for COVID. This rare, thankfully, this this small niche of children, uh, neurodevelopmental disabilities, maybe maybe um, uh, uh, genetic abnormalities that lead to immunosuppression. Uh, maybe kids for a brief phase undergoing some chemotherapy. Again, it would be a very, very small select population where you might um, volitionally have their parents opt to, to, to vaccinate them. Other than that, I just don't see it. You know, Joseph, in the entire country of Germany, which had a much more gradual analysis than we've had in the United States, um, they, they, they could not document a, sing, a single healthy child who died from COVID, uh, you know, through the pre-Omicron period, the entire period. And moreover, um, I think it was something like 40% of the, of the children who, who died with the label of, of a COVID death were, were, were basically in hospice care. You know, so, so th this, is, this is not a, a serious issue for well uh, young people across, across the whole pediatric age spectrum, which goes from less than 1 to 18. Uh, in the last segment, we talked with Congresswoman Mary Miller about the fact that states and schools are beginning to remove mask requirements. What is your uh, medical opinion of that decision? Oh, it should have happened a long time ago. I mean, in some states, basically functioned without them. Uh, you know, for, for for virtually all of the of the pandemic, like like South Dakota, like like Florida, and and uh, without any any penalty being paid by their, their pediatric uh, populations, their school age populations. Recall, Joseph, that uh, Sweden during the first wave, where obviously you know the, the least was known, and it turned out to be perhaps the most severe wave. Um, uh, Sweden kept its schools open uh, in school learning up to age 16. They didn't have a single pediatric death. And the uh, serious COVID morbidity amongst teachers as an occupation was, was just average. It, it, it wasn't higher. I and mean, the only group that was higher was actually healthcare workers. Yeah. So that was a mass societal experiment, which played out again from the get-go. And that should have taught us a lot. And, and, and by the way, Scandinavian countries frown upon masking, so they don't—they 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 um, don't prohibit it, but it's certainly not, you know, mandated or, or required it among school children. Dr. Andrew Boston, we are out of time, but we are again grateful for you taking some time for us. Thank, Thank you very you, much. Joseph. We'll see you soon.
Coming up next, our Human Rights on Ice segment, tracking human rights abuses in China in light of the Olympics. We're going to talk about something really disturbing, organ harvesting from political dissidents. Stay with us when we come back. Making the most of your money. Here's Dan Celia. You know, so many of us put money in our money market account. That's a good place to put it, right? It's safe. We don't have to worry about it being exposed to the markets. It should be FDIC insured because certainly if it's in a bank, it would be FDIC insured. So if there was ever a collapse of that particular bank, you would at least be able to take some peace knowing that it's insured and you're going to be covered and you're not going to lose money. Here's a couple of things about money market accounts that you need to know. One is you need to understand if you have a mutual fund money market account, it's not FDIC insured. That's important to know. As a matter of fact, in 2008, when we had the beginning of the financial crisis, there were many money market account mutual funds that dipped below the value that they had before the crisis, meaning that a dollar that was in there was no longer worth a dollar. That put, of course, fear in the financial markets. As a matter of fact, it prompted an immediate law to increase FDIC insurance to $250,000 because people were flocking out of money market accounts and moving into the banks. They're not always FDIC insured. If that is important to you, you need to ask the question, is this account FDIC insured? If it isn't, then you may want to consider moving it to a bank if that is important to you, the safety of FDIC insurance. Want to hear more financial advice from Dan Celia? Then look for his podcast when you visit the website AFR.net. Beijing 2022. Human rights on ice. Since the start of the 2022 Winter Olympics in Beijing, we have been devoting this special segment each day to highlight some of the atrocities being carried out by the Chinese Communist Party. Today, for Human Rights on Ice, we're going to discuss something that may make it harder to sleep at night, the Chinese Communist Party's harvesting of organs. Joining me now to talk about this is Ethan Gutman. He's the investigative reporter and author of The Slaughter, Mass Killings, Organ Harvesting, and China's Secret Solution to Its Dissident Problem. And Ethan joins us from Istanbul. Ethan, thank you so much for staying up and being with us tonight and uh, for you this morning. Welcome back to Washington Watch. It's a pleasure to be back. Well, we are glad to have you. It's not a fun story, but it's an important story. Uh, based on your research, what are your thoughts as you uh, watch the Olympic developments? I don't watch it, to be honest. Uh, uh, my wife complains about that. She says I ought to be looking at it. But I'm, I'm really, I'll take a look at some of the propaganda later. My interest right now is in exposing this problem. Uh, as it has been for some years. You know, this started with the Uyghurs, the the, uh, organ harvesting. It began with live organ harvesting in Xinjiang uh, in 1994 and uh, 1995. And then the first people who were harvested, the first political or religious prisoners who were harvested, who were uh, Uyghurs, and they were uh, harvested on behalf of uh, high-ranking Chinese Communist Party cadres who would come in to get kidneys or livers. Ethan, tell and, us a bit. Uh, tell so, us a bit more about that, if you would. What's when we think about organ harvesting? But if this is a system that the government's running, what's the motivation? Is this profit? Yes, but. If you follow the history of Marxism, you know that there's they can chew gum and and walk at the same time, and uh, so there's always there's often a profit motive and an ideological motive at the same time. That's precisely what we're seeing here, 
you can see that with the destruction of the kulaks uh, in, 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 in the Stalin period, uh, the same kind of thing. In this case, there is a very strong profit motive because a sold to a foreign organ tourist, a healthy 28-year-old or 29-year-old uh, can be worth about a half a million to a million dollars. That is, each individual organ is, uh, you know, if you put them all together uh, and you get them to the right people, you, you can make that kind of money off it. And Ethan, yeah. another, qu another question here, to be clear, it, does this result in the death of the people who are having these organs taken from them against their will? Yeah, absolutely, it does. There's no if you can't live without a heart, you can't live without lungs, you can't live without even two kidneys, and you can't live without a liver. You can live without your two corneas, but they're not really organs; they're tissues. Uh, but we, you, you see the point. You, you, mm -hmm. These people are destroyed, and that's why uh, most of this takes place inside China. It does not take place outside of China. There's not, we don't have real evidence uh, that they're flying these organs around, though that may be happening. Uh, but it, you know, we are talking about the destruction of people, and I'm, you know, I'm, I think the only person who can say this, based on my field research in Kazakhstan, uh, which was extensive, uh, there's about, well, it's 25,000 to 50,000 Uyghurs that are being harvested every year. It, it, it's a it's a totally disturbing number and and you're right i don't think people have an awareness that this is happening does the chinese government deny this or do they even bother to respond what's what's their response they, to these allegations when they're when they're most of the time they don't respond and they haven't uh they haven't felt they've needed to because they had for a long time until quite recently they had groups like the World Health Organization uh, carrying their water, running interference for them. Uh, sometimes they get groups like that to respond. They even get groups like the, uh, the Transplantation Society, an international group of revered uh, surgeons to respond in some cases and say, well, we think that problem's ending or China has reformed or those kinds of things. Uh, so, it's it's not really about the response. It's about getting the evidence. And the most difficult thing is that China has made it so difficult to uh, find the refugees now that basically what used to be human rights work has become a form of spycraft. Hmm. Is there something? Is this on the United States government's radar? Is they are they responding specifically and dealing specifically with these concerns? Well, you know, under Pompeo, they certainly were. And uh, this was a, a, an issue that was growing and, and moving very well. And, of course, Congress has been uh, fairly bipartisan in responding to China. And that's, that's a hopeful, that's what we hope will happen now. Uh, it's true that the, the Secretary of State Blinken has not been terribly responsive to this issue. Uh, I, I'd like to give all sorts of excuses. They're still new. It's just a year in, that kind of thing. But the fact is, uh, it, it's a shame that you have to kind of start over from scratch with every new administration. Uh, Pompeo was right there with us and, and realized this was going on uh, and uh, seen the evidence and looked at the evidence and his staff and read through Ethan Gutman. Research. We are unfortunately out of time for tonight. We do need to cover this again, but the clock is hard. But thank you so much for being with us. We really appreciate you sharing our, this important topic. Now, coming up right after the break, the SAFE Act introduced in Missouri. Why does this matter? According to recent studies, most of our friends and neighbors, including those who attend church, don't think about the day's moral and cultural issues through a biblical lens. Although most Americans believe they have a biblical worldview, only 6% do. That is why Family Research Council launched the Center for Biblical Worldview. This center serves to help Christians understand why Scripture must be authoritative and to equip believers to advance and defend faith in the workplace, in schools, in their communities, and in the public square. 
The experts at FRC's Center for Biblical Worldview provide research and resources to help prepare believers to give a biblical answer to our culture's most pressing questions. Access these free resources at frc.org worldview. See the Worldview Fellows' latest blogs, op-eds, interviews, and publications by signing up for the newsletter at frc.org subscriptions. Friendships is looking for full-time volunteer men and women who are serious about serving God, investing time in rewarding work, and helping people in need around the world. There is no charge to serve. Room and board are provided. A willing heart and a desire to work as part of a team are the primary skills required. Check out the opportunities at friendships.org or email portmercy at friendships.org. That's portmercy at friendships.org. American Family Studios was started back in 2011 as a way to advance the Christian worldview into an increasingly media-rich culture. Media is like such a powerful tool to communicate the gospel. I love writing stories, getting in my office, and just thinking, how can we portray this concept of who God's character is? And to get to use the gifts that God has given me is really a joy. AmericanFamilyStudios.net I feel so hopeless. hopeless. Is there any hope? I, I just feel like there's no hope at all. Is there any hope? Get hope. Get hope. My mother-in-law was seriously ill. That's TWR President Lauren Libby. Doctors had determined her situation was so serious, they needed to perform brain surgery. There was a good chance she wouldn't survive. And scans showed a growth at the base of her brain. I can remember standing in that hospital losing hope. As a family, we stood over Mother and told Jesus how much we loved her and asked Him to bring hope to her family as she faced this surgery. The next morning during surgery, the doctors couldn't find any abnormality. So they stopped, and she lived another 10 years. Do you know what that did for the family? It brought hope back from a dark situation. Now Jesus can bring hope in the worst situations. Need more hope? We have resources waiting for you, including a free devotional. You'll find them at GetHopeRadio.com. That's GetHopeRadio.com. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph back home with you in for Tony today. He will be back in the chair on Monday. I am joining you, broadcasting from Fort Worth, Texas, the Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. We appreciate their hospitality uh, to the program, to Washington Watch today, as well as to the International Association for Christian Education. Had a great week talking about higher education, Christian higher education, how it can be a tool for the advancement of the kingdom, and really a discipleship tool when so much higher education has headed the wrong direction. Be encouraged that there are people doing it the right way. Just make sure before you make that investment in college that you are investing it in the right place, and the International Association for Christian Education can help you do that. One of the reasons why it's important to to get the right mental training is so you can think biblically about the world and soundly about the issues that are in front of us. And that's the purpose of our next segment and conversation. Now, Walt Heyer is a gentleman who previously identified as a transgender woman. He lived as a woman for eight years. But later, he came to regret the gender transition surgery that he underwent. His story is not unique, as many who have undergone medical procedures have come to regret them. However, the left has been hard at work trying to silence Waltz and the voices of others who have a similar detransitioning experience because their experience suggests children should not be rushed into hormone treatments and surgeries in an attempt to masculinize or feminize their bodies. The fact is, sex change regret is real. And it's also true that the supermajority of children who experience gender dysphoria outgrow it once they go through puberty. And that's why legislation like the Save Adolescents from Experimentation, the SAFE Act, is so vital to prevent kids from making permanent, life-changing decisions like gender transition procedures that they will regret in the future. Joining me now to discuss this legislation from a biblical perspective is David Clawson. He's the director of the Center for Biblical Worldview at Family Research Council. David, 
Welcome back to the program. Hey, great to be with you, Joseph, and I hope you're enjoying the warm hospitality of Southwestern Seminary, where I'm a proud PhD student. Well, uh, I am enjoying their hospitality. It's lovely here. It is about 80 degrees, but I should say, David, a happy belated birthday to you, young man. Hope you have uh, celebrated appropriately <laughs> this week. Now, you and I did get to celebrate a little bit uh, together. We were in Missouri together uh, talking with legislators primarily, but others as well, some pastors uh, and some local community leaders there. Uh, Tell us what the SAFE Act momentum there in Missouri is about. What are they trying to accomplish? Yeah, really important conversation, Joseph. And it was such a blessing uh, to be there in Missouri earlier this week, meeting with uh, State Representative Susie Pollack, uh, who hosted an event. We got to meet dozens of her colleagues. And uh, I think just before the program started, there's already 16 co-sponsors to the SAFE Act. And, and you mentioned it briefly, but Joseph, what this legislation is going to is attempting to do uh, if passed again this the adolescence uh, save adolescence from experimentation act this is legislation that would simply prohibit puberty blocking drugs cross-sex hormones and so-called gender transition or reassignment surgeries for minors that's what this would do it would also prohibit public funding uh, insurance coverage and the referral of such procedures for minors. Uh, this seems like common sense legislation, but right now only Arkansas uh, has this legislation on the books. And so it's moving in many states, including Missouri. And this is vital legislation uh, for protecting children uh, from irreversible procedures. And that's what this legislation would do, Joseph. And the, and the title is Save Adolescents from Experimentation. And lest you think that is an exaggeration, an alarmist title, it's important to underline the fact that the hormone treatments for minors that this bill would ban are, in fact, experimental yeah. because the drugs have not been approved by anyone for these purposes. Uh, there are drugs that have been approved for other purposes that are given to minors who experience gender dysphoria, but they have not undergone the study and the analysis that would otherwise be required for drugs that are be prescribed for a specific purpose. And so it is, in fact, in a, in a very technical sense, an experiment that we are putting our children under. And David, as you talked, uh, as we talked with legislators, you talked to the public about this bill, what do you think their primary concern is? I think there's a lot of concerns. You know, at the end of the day, Joseph, you know, people don't want their children to be harmed. And I think, you know, the, you did a great job explaining this in your presentation uh, uh, to the legislators that, you know, there is real distress and anguish for folks who are confused about their gender. We need to recognize that. Uh, we need to, especially uh, as one who's been to seminary and been in counseling classes, we need to uh, acknowledge that there's real pain in the transgender community. However, uh, studies have shown, Joseph, that 85% of minors who experienced an incongruity right. between their biological self or biological sex and their uh, psychological uh, self-perception of another gender, 85% of that is resolved uh, during or after puberty. And so, again, we, we shouldn't be rushing in there to do irreversible surgeries that have a whole host of issues, including right. um, uh, increased risk of breast cancer, high blood pressure, diabetes, sterility. And so I think, again, that's why this legislation is so necessary, because it really is about protecting children. I think there's a way to discuss this that makes it easier for people to understand because uh, we, we talk about gender reassignment surgery and it sounds kind of like sterile and just kind of like I'm going to go remove a tooth or something. But when, if you ask the average person on the street, should a 13-year-old be allowed to remove their fingers, everyone would be horrified saying, of course you can't remove your fingers. You need your fingers. But these are actually <laughs> arguably and not arguably, certainly more important body parts to an adolescent's future and life, yet we have a significant percentage of the public who would say, yeah, if you feel like removing them, if taking those appendages off of your body is going to make you happy, go for it. Now, from a common sense perspective, a lot of us cringe at that idea. But David, in the article that you've written this week, you think it's more than practical. There's a theological argument there that you think the church needs to be aware of. Tell us a bit about that. 
Yeah, I think there are practical reasons, there's medical reasons, but as Christians, I think there are theological reasons. And one of those reasons is that uh, legislation like the SAFE Act is fundamentally affirming uh, the biblical theological principles, namely that there's a difference between our maleness and femaleness. Uh, let me give you a verse, Joseph, Genesis 1, 26 through 27. Um, verse 27 says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created male and female. He created them. Really significant verse for how we think about uh, God's work in creation, our being rooted in his image. Um, there's similarities between men and women that we are, create, we are both created in God's image. We're both called to uh, represent him to the rest of creation. But there's a fundamental difference. It says right there in the verse, male and female, he created them. Now, I think, Joseph, most people would agree with us on that point that there's, sure, there's a difference between male and female. But the, the, the rub, what's now hotly contested, is what is the nature of that difference? And it's actually there in Scripture. Uh, the nature of that difference is ultimately rooted to biology. And you see that in the next verse, Genesis 1, uh, verse 28. It says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. That verse right there, that's known as the creation mandate. That was God's command to Adam and Eve. He says, be fruitful and multiply. That's right after Scripture explains that we're created male and female. That command, be fruitful and multiply, cannot be fulfilled unless there are two complementary, biologically, genetically sexed individuals. And so right there, the, our maleness and femaleness is inextricably rooted and grounded in biology. Uh, you you do state the obvious there, but it isn't obvious anymore, it seems. Now, the other side of this issue would not necessarily disagree. The left would not say there's no such thing as male and female. They right. would simply say that male and female are not a function of our anatomy. It's a function of the way we feel. Theologically speaking, from a worldview perspective, what's the difference between believing that male and femaleness, our sex and our gender, are determined for us by God rather than by ourselves? What, what's the significance of that different perspective to how we see male and female? Yeah, great question. And that is exactly what our culture is doing. There, it, again, the words gender and sex used to be synonymous. You could use them and refer to the same thing. Nowadays, you hear that sex is a fundamentally a, a biological and anatomical reality where gender is this self-understanding, this self-perception. Uh, but the biblical worldview teaches us uh, that our maleness and our femaleness is a it is a foundational, fundamental part of our nature. Uh, I had a seminary professor who said, we are gendered all the way down. And ultimately, that is rooted in our biology uh, to the, the level of genetics, the level of chromosomes. And again, that is God's good design uh, for us. Uh, that is what it means to be created in God's image. Uh, one of the things that me, one of the things that me, uh, were created in God's image is the fact that there is a differentiation uh, in the male and the female. And that, that were, those come together in marriage to fulfill uh, the uh, creation warrant. And that, again, is a part of God's good design uh, that Christians need to, uh, we could, used to take that for granted. We can no longer take that for granted. We need to teach that. We need to understand that. And we, we need to believe this because this is in the first two chapters of God's word. Now, David, a lot of people in the church would look at an issue like this because it is divisive. And if you've been through legislative hearings like we have on issues like this, you realize this is a difficult subject. It's deeply personal, generates a lot of emotion, generates a lot of anger. People yell at each other. There's tears. That's the kind of issue that this is. And because of that, a lot of people would look at this and say, well, I'm about the gospel. I don't want to give in get involved in politics because politics are divisive. It's going to create enemies. And I just want to make sure people know I love them because if they don't love me, I can't share the gospel with them. And they might make that argument and then and therefore decide I'm going to be silent on this sh that issue. I'm not going to engage. What would you say to them? I would say that Christ himself doesn't give us that option. You know, the Great Commission, we, we're all familiar with it. Uh, at the end of Matthew's gospel, he says uh, that we're to go and uh, teach them, uh, teach people all that Jesus has commanded and he'll be with us. Well, intrinsic to that is uh, what Jesus says is we're to go teach all that he has commanded. And yes, the gospel, the, the foundational glorious truth that we can be reconciled to a holy God uh, by repenting of sin and turning of faith to Christ, 
That's the gospel. That's what we need to be preaching. But Jesus told us to go share all that he's commanded us. And Jesus taught a lot about other issues. He taught about marriage. He taught about uh, divorce. He taught about a whole host of issues. And our createdness as male and female, this is something that Jesus believed. This is something that Jesus taught. When Jesus was walking around this earth uh, 2,000 years ago, this was part of the sermons that he preached. And so as, as a matter of Christian faithfulness, as a matter of Christian witness, we need to be teaching the whole counsel of God's word, which includes issues, Joseph, that have now become very contested, issues related to marriage, issues related to uh, sexuality. Uh, but we can't back down. Sure, our culture doesn't want us to talk about things like homosexuality or transgenderism, but God's word addresses these things. And, and why does God's word address these things? It addresses them to teach us about God's perspective, because ultimately God's perspective is what's good for his humanity. And so I think that's what we need to realize. We're not given the option to sit these kinds of conversations out. So especially pastors need to be bold and declare the whole counsel of God's word. And I, I think that's our encouragement. That's my message uh, to especially pastors, but really all Christians uh, who believe that God's word is sufficient, because God's word is sufficient. Let's share everything that it has to teach. We're talking with David Clausen, who's the director of the Center for Biblical Worldview at Family Research Council. And David, it's funny because when we, uh, Genesis chapter one, about verse 26 or 27, where it says, male and female, he created them. For most of my life, those were kind of a, that was a flyover verse. We would never, never really paused to, uh, you know, reflect on the significance of that because it seemed self-evident. It wasn't something that was particularly controversial. It seemed obvious. It was almost as if it didn't even need to be there because everybody knows that already. But here we are, and it is uh, suddenly very, very relevant. But there's another question I want to ask you about that I think might trip people up on this conversation, because we know that parental rights is also a Christian issue. God gave uh, children to their parents, not to the government. Why should the government be able to step in in this case if the parents say, no, this is good for my kids? Why should the government be able to step in and say, no, parents, you can't cut off your kids' organs? Yeah, on most issues, Joseph, you and I would be standing up for parent, parental rights uh, because I, the scripture is clear that the, the chief disciple-making responsibility resides in the home. It resides with the mother and the father. Uh, but when it comes to uh, the, the physical well-being and health of children, government for a long time has recognized uh, that parents can't be negligible. They can't willingly endanger their children. That's why parents get in trouble if they leave their kids in a locked car uh, where they could get overheated and pass out. Uh, parents get in trouble uh, if they do other things with their children that would expose their child to harm and danger. And, and again, these procedures, puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, gender yeah. reassignment surgery, these things are dangerous and life-altering. A child that goes through this, Joseph, they, they, yeah. they'll never be the same. And that's why there's an obligation for us to protect our children. Children can't get tattoos until they're 18. In some states, including my home state of Washington state, uh, you can't go to a sunbed until you're 18. Yet many people would have children be, be able to cut off their sex organs at much earlier ages than that. There are limits to what parents can do for their children. Common sense must prevail. And David Clausen, we appreciate your time in making that clear to us. Thanks so much. Have a great weekend. Thank you, Joseph. You too. And friends, that's our program for today. We are so grateful that you have been with us. I'm again broadcasting from Southwestern Baptist Seminary. It's been my pleasure to be with you. I hope this has blessed you. As you enjoy your weekend with your family, remember, fear God and nothing else. We'll see you next time here on Washington Watch. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.